0: So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite.
1: You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.
2: There's an article out on NBC News. This came out not only maybe just a couple weeks ago, and it's titled Anti-Asian Bias Incident Reports Have Continued to Surge and New Research Shows. And it goes down through a testimony from several people that are community leaders, one in San Francisco, others in the state of Texas, that this is a major issue. This platform transforming a nation has done nothing but reached out to our pharmacy community, my number one favorite provider, and really sourcing and finding people that have experienced this firsthand, racism, health disparities, spirituality issues in in healthcare and pharmacy. Sexual harassment um, was a powerful two-part series of, of, of embedded into transforming the nation. Pharmacists focused on LGBTQ communities and issues that they understand using data to combat racism and health disparities. Today, I am so proud that we're continuing this series and we're going to bring on two of our guests today Dr. Shin Yu Li, PharmD, and Dr. Bonnie Hui Callahan, PharmD. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Todd. It's such an honor to be here.
3: Very excited. Thank you for having
4: us.
2: So, I am so pleased and honored that you've uh, come aboard the Transforming the Nation platform and really using this from an audio perspective. Someone right now, we're driving, working out, uh, chopping up vegetables for dinner, whatever it may be. Podcasting is very special because you can do, like me, I'm attention deficit probably, and I do multiple things at once. So I'm constantly listening to podcasts to educate myself But this is a serious issue that I don't understand myself. I'm, as I said, in post recording, five foot seven, 160 pound white male, and I've never faced racism myself. Um, I understand that it's there, but it's not enough anymore to stand um, side by side with others in our healthcare industry to combat this. We have to be much more educational about it and understanding that it's there and what needs to be addressed. But more than addressing it, we almost have to come up with creative and aggressive ways of of disintegrating it within our culture. And I think it starts with our healthcare professionals. And from my perspective, it starts with our pharmacists and our pharmacist teams. So just to start off, I'm going to ask Bonnie, if you'd give us a little overview of yourself and your background as a pharmacist and why you became a pharmacist. And then um, we're going to jump into a, a bigger conversation with Xinyu.
1: Yes, I'd love to. So. Um, first and foremost, I'm Chinese American. Um, I think that's important to kind of say off the bat, um, given the topic of today. Um, my family, um, my parents are actually born in, um, in mainland China. Uh, my mom was, and, and, uh, my father in Hong Kong, they immigrated, um, over to Canada, uh, where I was actually born. And then together as a family, we immigrated to the United States in the late nineties, specifically, um, to live out the American dream that they had, which was for their, um, for their kids to live and thrive in the United States. And so that's what we did. Um, I started high school um, in the United States and um, fast forward four years, by the end of um, senior year, we had, as everybody does, that conversation with their parents about what you're gonna be when you grow up. Because when you're a 16, 17, 18 year old, you know, right? Um, So I will say that conversation was very brief because as an immigrant a child of an immigrant of immigrant parents you know you have three choices and that is to be a doctor an engineer or a lawyer my my brother took the engineering route as far as his focus in college um and so the focus on me was you're going to become a doctor and my dad was a dentist and he said you're going to be a dentist you're going to take over my practice and I said I don't that feels kind of like a lot of pressure I don't see myself managing a business and trying to get, you know, be a dentist all at the same time, it was just too much. And so they said, well, talk to your aunt and your uncle, they're both pharmacists, you might like it. And I said, all right, so talk to them. And I said, you know what, this sounds good enough. <laughs> and I I feel ashamed saying that, but that's the truth at the time. I said, you know what, I'll just try it. And so I was fortunate to get into the pre-pharmacy program at University of Southern California, where I actually met Shin Yu. Um, and I will say, by after grad um by the time I was almost graduating my undergrad in pre-pharmacy, I was still not sure. Um, and I had a similar conversation. I sat them down for dinner one night in my senior year, and I said, "I don't think I want to go to pharmacy school. I, I just don't know." And they said, again, very brief conversation. They said, "No, you're going." And I said, all right, well, that was that was a nice talk. And so I started pharmacy school shortly after in the fall. And, but I told myself, if I'm going to do this very grueling next four years, I need to find my, my, my why, my passion for pharmacy um, to get through it. And so luckily, within the first few weeks, as I was kind of going through orientation and classes, I started noticing that there were leaders who were you know, a couple grades ahead of me in pharmacy school. They were leaders of organizations on campus, but also um, pharmacy associations statewide and nationally. Um, they were leaders who looked like me as well. So many of them, they were Asian American and they had something about them an air about them that they were so confident and they had something to say and something to offer. And I said, I wanna be like that. And so within weeks, um, I joined organizations, I was on boards I and by my final year of pharmacy school, I was on the national uh, leadership um, uh, committee for American Pharmacists Association Academy of Student Pharmacists. And I really, that was my through line through pharmacy school. And that was what kind of really gave me passion um, about pharmacy. And that's how I fell in love with it. And that goes, that through line goes to today, Uh, leadership and leadership as a woman of color is a passion of mine. And that's um, in addition to my day job, you know, one of my passion projects that started this year was um, creating a digital course and uh, virtual coaching um, business, focused on healthcare leadership. And as a woman of color, I hope to inspire others around me to say, you know what, I can do that. I can kind of capture my voice and be a leader in, in this profession as well. And so um, here I am today. I have um, I've been a pharmacist for over 10 years now in a variety of practices in retail pharmacy, in um, managed care and in academia. And it's been just a great wild ride in all the different facets of pharmacy.
2: That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Shin Yu, you're up. We want to hear why you became a pharmacist and, and what you're most passionate about.
3: You know, Bonnie, I, I agree with you on that brief conversation with their parents about, hey, what, what should I be? You know, and that's right. That's the same menu that we're talking about is, is a doctor, lawyer, engineer. And, um, and to be honest, the conversation was less than five minutes. So um, I actually
4: came <laughs>
3: So I, so in all honesty, I actually discovered pharmacy when I went to science camp. Um, no joke, my, my father told me you can either go to junior prom or science camp, choose one. I don't know why that was, but that's just how it came to be. So I said, I want to go to science camp. And so a local uh, university near where where we were at offered this wonderful program that allowed you to explore the different careers in science. And there was a field trip to Amgen. And I think they're located in Thousand Oaks, so I'll have to double check me. But I loved meeting the pharmacists there. You know, the fact that they were able to research and develop new drugs is very fascinating to me. And plus my parents gave their blessing. So I was like, great, this is gold. So as a high school senior, I applied to the pre-pharmacy program at uh, University of Southern California. I unfortunately did get in. And I will say that, um, you know, Todd, your recent podcast with Dr. Kendrick really hit home for me because she shared that one of her first um, pharmacy rotations was in ambulatory care. And so was mine. And that's where I just fell in love with direct patient care. Um, you know, as much as I loved like being in the lab, doing learning about R&D and development, I loved talking uh, to, to patients more. I think one of the things that really inspires me about direct patient care is the fact that as you get to know each patient or family's like, personal stories, you have a window into their physical health. And I think establishing that relationship and rapport with them and seeing them, like the diabetes get better, right, or the depression get better and use medications to help them and think about their health in a holistic way is been so rewarding for me. So for the last 10 years, I've exclusively been in the public health sector. So I've worked in um, parts of St. Louis and now in San Francisco. So my current role is I do supervise a group of ambulatory care pharmacists in the Bay Area, and I'm also a clinical pharmacist, so I'm still maintaining a clinical
2: practice. That's great. I, I think of myself and, and what I wanted to be, what I thought I wanted to be. I think the first thing I settled on was um, something artistic. And then I found out what the word public relations was, and I thought that would be fun. And then I got into telecommunications and still wasn't happy after eight years and it wasn't until uh, 2004 that I, I found my home, which was the pharmacy industry from the technology perspective. But it's interesting how we think we know what we want to become. And it's not until we get there and it starts to manifest, it starts to connect us to other people and it, it connects us to other outcomes of sections of our life and then it blossoms into something that's much more mission based and you both have backgrounds that you started out in doing something that was going to become just your profession. And now it's leading you towards something that's much more mission driven, which is awesome.
1: Yeah, I've, I've worked uh, actually both you and I have worked with many students. I mean, I've mentored, you know, younger practitioners, um, over the years. And one of the main things that I always try to convey to them is that, you know, first of all, your first job is never going to be your last job. Um, but also just know that, you know, there's, there are so many opportunities, you know, within pharmacy, don't feel like you're locked into it. I think there was so much stress as a high schooler that I felt, okay, if I take this next step, that's it for the rest of my life. And, um, it just caused so much stress. And so kind of, you know, opening up my eyes to say, okay, there's, there's, a pathway forward and it can look, it can be multifaceted. And like you said, Todd, finding your mission is just such a, I mean, that's, that's the gold there. Um, and that's the calling. So.
4: And I,
3: yeah, that's why we're here today. Is I think talking a lot about what has, what our clinical mission has also become a, a social conversation, right? About what we're seeing on the ground. And that's why we're just so happy that we have, we're given this opportunity with your platform, Todd, to talk about
2: something so important. Absolutely the whole reason it was designed. So there is a base of patients out there. And I've heard this from our, um, African-American pharmacists. Um, William Amarque, Dr. Amarque is going to be on Amarque. I always say Amarque. Sorry. Sorry, Will. I always say that. But, um, (laughs) but we, we're going to have him come back and really talking about pain management and he was, but he was on the transforming the nation and it's fun to see how pharmacists are migrating from one show to the next show. And we love that. So if you ever want to get onto another show, it, it just look around and jump on and, and stay within the network. But we, we've learned from him about his perception as a professional, as someone that went through college and went through, um, Residency and went through and but the perception of what he went through as a African-American and someone who uh, felt uh, that pinch uh, every once in a while that he was getting based on that. And I want us to take this time to be very forward with our audience and letting them know that this is out there. It's ugly. It's happening to cultures. It's happening to people. Um, different societies and different communities more than others. I live in Fayette County, Pennsylvania. I don't hear much about, uh, the, the, the term Asian hate here in Fayette County, but Pittsburgh is very close to me. I have heard of situations. There have been marches, um, that I've, I've paid attention to. I want to open it up to you as two professionals that have gone through that in your culture and what you've experienced and how we can use this as a educational platform to make others aware and also um, give our audience some best case scenario to do to kind of help dispel. And like I said at the beginning, and in order to disintegrate the situation.
1: Yeah, maybe I can kind of, um... Take a stab at it, and, and uh, first, and, and lay the groundwork of um, as far as numbers and what has been happening um, since the pandemic started. And then, Shinyu, I know, has some great examples personally um, where she where she lives. Um, so, Todd, you mentioned this in your intro, um, but you're right. There, there has been a surge of cases um, in the reports that were just released. The latest report was actually just released last week um, from an organization, great organization called Stop AAP 8 Hate. Dot com, And I encourage all of you to go on that website. They have so many resources. Um, they essentially started um, as a reporting website when they, in March of last year, when the pandemic first started, they decided to create this reporting center where people could report anonymously what was happening to them. So they've been collecting data since March of last year. They just ran their latest national report that goes through June of 2021. And what they found was that um, there has been um, approximately or just over 9,000 incidents that have been reported since March of last year. And to give some perspective, um, I was fortunate to give um, a a talk about anti-Asian racism back in um, early April. And at that point, I was giving statistics from the same website, they had under four thousand incidents at that point from March of 2020 to March of 2021. Since that time, since March through just last month, the cases has doubled to from four under four thousand to nine now nine thousand. And so this is ha- still happening and happening even more so, unfortunately. And so I wanted to highlight that because I thought that was significant just to see what is what you know, nationally, what has been happening. Um, Some of the other statistics that are interesting is Chinese uh, Americans are the largest group or ethnic group um, of Asian Americans that have been, uh, that have reported experiencing racism or hate. Verbal harassment is the most common form at about 65%. And, you know, women, interestingly enough, um, seem to be more impacted by these crimes than men um, at 63%. And um, so in addition to that, um, Stop AAPI Hate also released a mental health report, which is really interesting to, to look at their data. Um, and they found that you know almost half of Asian Americans, 46% reported anxiety during the pandemic with 15% of them having depressive symptoms. But perhaps even more telling is that Asian Americans who experienced racism in the past year felt more stressed by anti-Asian hate then the pandemic itself, then the virus itself. And I, I mean, I take a step back and I think about that. And I mean, how, I mean, I'm stressed myself just trying to get my kids out the door with masks on, right? Yeah. But add the layer of, oh my gosh, as you know, people might come attack me or verbally harass me because of the color of my skin. I mean, no wonder um, this, you know, or this report and these statistics have been coming out. The silver lining. Um, with all this perhaps is that after reporting Asian Americans have experienced um, who have experienced racism have lower traumatic stress. And so there is value in kind of vocalizing your experiences and they have found that through the reporting center. And so I, I, I think that that is important to highlight as well, because it highlights the idea that we need to create community for each other, not just amongst Asian Americans, but as our allies, as white Americans, as those of other races, to open the platform to say, "How do you feel safe? And how have you been a, perhaps a victim of verbal harassment or verbal assault? So with that, maybe I can hand it over, Shinyu, for maybe some examples that you've experienced yourself.
3: Well, you know, at this point, I, I'm really hoping that our listeners can really take a pause and just, digest all of the the statistics that that Bonnie had just presented. I mean, they are numbers, but each of those numbers is a person behind that number. And anti-Asian racism, it's not just a now thing, right? It's been around. My family immigrated from Taiwan. I was born overseas. And I remember my father coming home one day and he basically said that someone told him to get out because he had entered a
4: 7-Eleven and it was because he, he was Asian. You know, during the pandemic, I mean, I am getting a little emotional because it is my patients and it's actually my
3: family. You know, we're not a statistic, we're human beings and we have
4: feelings and, and we have concerns for physical safety. And that's what I'm hoping our our listeners will, will take in. And it's very concerning because the fact is I have patients who tell me, my Asian American patients, I don't want to come in. And they're foregoing taking care of their healthcare because they fear for their physical safety.
3: And what they see, I, I'm not sure if you guys have, you know, have seen, but there were increased amounts of physical public violence against our Asian American elderly, particularly women, in Oakland and in San Francisco.
4: It was so much so that even my in-laws who regularly go to Oakland Chinatown, they do not go anymore. At a local rec center where I live, there was spray painted signs, get out Asians during the pandemic or you know, my, my daughter wanted to go out for a walk and she wanted to wear our um, clothes. It's like a, you know, cultural, like Asian uh, Chinese dress. And I said, no, because I was too scared that it bring too much attention to her, right? I say all this because we hear it in the news, right, God? You know, we hear it in the news and it's a story. Oh,
3: it doesn't affect me. But actually, you know, if we hear a story, I think that there's a, there's a social responsibility that we have to, to say, what can we do? What can we do to combat this? And on the clinic side, we've done a number of things to make our patients feel more comfortable. And part of that is our banners, our pamphlets show a diversity of faces. We're also more proactive in asking our Asian American patients, do you feel safe? What are your concerns? because your physical safety is very important to us as well as you're entering your clinic. Do you need help? We have mental health services, right? And that's one of the also difficult things about is that growing up culturally, we don't really talk about mental health, right? Yep. And it, to be very honest, it's kind of frowned upon. Um, and we're actually taught like not to seek out mental health services, but we need it. So how do we engage our Asian American patients in making sure that we offer the services and they feel comfortable in seeking
4: it out and engaging with it. You know, Bonnie reminded me of something this morning that under the umbrella of Asian Americans, there's Chinese
3: Americans, there's Vietnamese Americans, Korean Americans, and each of those beautiful cultures have different uh, health challenges, health risks. And so as, as clinicians, whether you're a pharmacist, a doctor, or anyone else, I think it's important to be able to, to appreciate that and to acknowledge that when you're caring for, for them. So I know I've said a lot, and, and I do apologize that, you know,
4: I have become a little emotional, but it's because it's very personal to me.
2: No, yeah, that's yeah. why we put this together. That's why you're here right now. This is not easy. And it's not easy to hear because I take on a lot of guilt myself for feeling as I've, as a, as someone in the profession that I probably feel like I haven't done em- enough, but to hear it from someone who has experienced it in the testimony that you shared with your father, that's so powerful. If I heard my father come home, he was an electrician for IBEW for 45 years. And if I would have heard him say that he wasn't welcome on a job because of his uh, nationality or, you know, because of his language, because of what he ate, because of his style or something, um, or that would be crushing to me because I identify as his son. As, that's an identity impact on me when I see that in his eyes and I see that fear or that upsetness in his face. and And that's the 9,000 plus cases that you're speaking of. Stop AAPI Hate, which we'll have in the show notes, that national coalition. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for mentioning them. Um, They've become this authority in gathering data on racially motivated attacks related to this pandemic specifically. And they've received, as you said, 9,081 incident reports between March 19th of 2020 and just this June of 2021 and of those 4548 occurred within the last year and the other 4533 occurred this year so it's a it's a it's almost exactly the same it hasn't decreased and since the coronavirus was first reported in China people of Asian and Pacific Islander descent have been treated as scapegoats and solely based on their race and you know it's 2021 <laughs> I don't, it's hard for me to get my brain around it, once again, because of my racial ignorance, because of me not experiencing it personally. And Shin Yu, you surprised me when you gave the demographic of where this was happening, because when you say the Bay Area, to me, I would think San Francisco and the California entire state would be the best place to be to being an asian or being a pacific islander or because of the diversity mixture once again i'm from what southwestern pennsylvania and the only culture that i run into on a um uh, on a regular basis is the restaurants that my wife and i love going to and we have relationships with these people because we know them by name and we know them we know their personalities and we have inside jokes and And that's fun. It's fun to feel like it's part of it. And the culture that's brought out of these people in my life is so rewarding for me because it it teaches me something about the differences between us that are bonding in culture rather than the opposite. But Shen Yu, that surprised me when you said that. I can't believe that where I would think it would be less, it's actually condensed and it may be even more.
3: It surprised a lot of people, Todd. And I also want to acknowledge how much I appreciate you like being so open with Bonnie and I about you know, your personal uh, story and, and, and how much you're willing to, to listen and participate with us um, in, in combating anti in, asian racism. I, I don't even, to be honest, Todd, I don't know what to say um, that I am surprised with you. But what I'm most hopeful for is that in response so those very public violent acts is that they, as a community, were, we're very family oriented, you know, and I love that um, they actually organized a service called Compassion in Oakland. And so the website's called compassioninoakland.org. And it's where if you don't feel safe, you can actually request a chaperone to go with you. Um, whether it's grocery shopping or whatever you need to do, it's because they saw that there was a need and that we're, all, and, and that we're able to rally together, right, to, to provide that kind of service. And that's the kind of community we are, is you know what? It happened. It shouldn't have happened. But what can we do to make um, you know, our brothers and sisters feel, feel safe and our, and our family feel safe? And I, even to this day, I have patients who say, our, my Asian American patients say, I'm afraid to like cough in public even with a mask on because they get they, they, they're scared because there's a, there was a public perception that they brought the virus here or, or they originated the virus. And so and, and that's also part of the reason why they just want to stay at home and don't want to come out because of the looks or people have actually walked to the other side of the street. Because they coughed even with the mask on. So it's still real, it's still ongoing, and it's disheartening, right? The statistics that um, Bonnie
4: was sharing.
1: Yeah, and to go off of that, um, you know, the the city that actually Shinu and I both happened to grow up in, um, the city that you know my parents specifically chose out of the entire U.S. map, they chose the city of Irvine in California because in 1998 when we moved, it was the high, the safest city in the country, um, and it also happened to have good school ratings and all that, and so, so that's the reason we moved, and that's exactly where we moved to um, when we immigrated from Canada. It So taking that city alone in the past year, since the start of the pandemic, they found that there was a 1200% rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans in that city alone. And that um, Irvine is now the, you know, Asian Americans now make up the majority of the population in Irvine. We're at 44%, I believe. And, um, you know, it's alarming. And you would think that in a city where there is pretty much the majority that there, there would be more tolerance or acceptance, you know, of, of Asian Americans, but it, it seemed to perhaps be the opposite effect. And, um, you know, we unfortunately saw many crimes in suburbs Um, Just down the street, I just drove by it yesterday, there was a field where um, the same week in March when the Atlanta shootings happened, March 23rd is when the the Atlanta shootings happened, where eight people were killed, six of whom were Asian women. Two days later, um, there was an incident, thankfully not tragic, but um, uh, an elderly Asian male was walking his dog um, in a park um, in Irvine, and um, he was approached by, um, you know, a younger gentleman, not Asian, and um, the, the Asian gentleman kind of bent down to pick up his smaller dog, um, and in bending over, um, the other man started just kind of kneeing him and attacking him um, to the point where he had to go to the ER and, and you know, get, you know, get seen. Um, and this was an elderly Asian man. In fact, I believe his son is a pharmacist. Um, and so it kind of hit home, you know, when I heard about that case, because not only was it within a three mile radius from where I grew up, um, but, you know, his son is a pharmacist, you know, his dad probably looks like my dad. Um, and, you know, this contributed to the number of hate crimes that we were seeing in in suburbs, in a city where it what you know, it was and historically has been the safest city in the country. So, you know, this has definitely been a very alarming um, issue
3: for us. Well, I think by the fact that, you know, it's happening in a place like Irvine, right? And it's happening in the Bay Area where there's a large percentage of AAPI community. It's, I think it's illustrating for us that it's actually almost everywhere, you know, and and we're not immune to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So there's a, there's an advantage in many ways for, from a patient's perspective, when they walk into the pharmacy to see someone that they feel is more relatable to them, whether that is a woman to a woman um, relationship, a, a man who would rather talk to a woman or a woman who would rather talk to a man or vice versa. Me, for example, I remember I was maybe this is 15 years ago and I walked into my normal primary care, uh, for my, um, my yearly checkup, although it was every three years, I wasn't probably going often enough. And in, when I walked, when, when the door opened up after I sat on the, you know, the, the table and waiting for the doctor walking in walks, this very attractive short physician, um, and I wanted no part of it. Like I don't want examined by uh, an attractive physician. I wanted my own <laughs> man, old guy to poke <laughs> around at me. And I li- I was like, so, but that was like, I was very nervous. So when you walk into the pharmacy and you see someone that looks like you who may be able to speak to you, um, we've we've heard this in the Hispanic communities where they're able to speak Spanish there is a, an element of trust, which takes us up a level when we're talking about pharmacists because pharmacists are seeing their patients, you know, 10 times more than their primary care. So this is a very special episode for our Asian and Pacific Islander pharmacists in trying to encourage them as well as other pharmacists who aren't of that nationality or, or descent to understand Here's we're here for you, but what advice can we give to them to becoming more observant of this, especially if you aren't Asian and you in your have a patient that is or is there is there something that that you've done in the clinician leaders example for, you know, Bonnie and what you're building to really set the stage for empathy and for learning about dealing with cultures From a form of respect, but more importantly, from a form of trust?
1: Yeah, there's um, an an acronym that um, we developed um, with the clinician leader, and that's the MUST model, M U -S S T. And kind of if we kind of go down the different letters, M is model and teach kindness. And, you know, this is something as as Asian Americans, we have a responsibility to teach kindness to each other, to our children, Um, but really, you know, it starts in the home and then also in our workplaces, right? So if we are in a, if we are pharmacy managers, you know, we need to treat our technicians, our clerks, our store upfront store folks. I mean, we need to model and and teach kindness and respect and and, and show that ourselves. Um, So that's the first step, I think, Um, and as allies, um, you know, that applies as well. Um, you stands for use your voice. Um, as Asian Americans, you know, we we tend to kind of shy away. We tend to have a history of wanting to assimilate, right? And so we don't want to ruffle the feathers um, because for fear of what we've seen historically, right? And I'll kind of take a, an aside real quick, but in 1882, the passage of the chinese exclusion act which was the first discriminatory law um against a, a racial group and it was because there were too many chinese americans coming in it was they were threatening uh, white american jobs and so they said never mind i'm going to institute a law that says if you're chinese you can no longer enter our country and that was in 1882 and so you can see how historically right as asian americans we kind of we ha- have a tendency to sweep things under the rug or to want to assimilate, to kind of stay quiet, to stay invisible, right? Because for fear of, let's see what happened then, it could happen now, right? So, but now I think it's important for us as Asian Americans to use our voice and to use platforms, you know, to, to kind of share our stories. I'll admit Todd, when you reached out to do this podcast episode, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm the one to do it. I don't know if I would be representative of The Asian American community, but there was another voice on the other side that said, "But if you don't do it, who will? Right? Who 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 would? And not to say that I'm the only one who could do it, and Shinu, you know, would be the only one, but you know, but we have a responsibility to step up when we have the opportunity, and so that's what the U stands for: is use your voice. And then S is stop the cycle of shame. Shame is another historically prevalent theme as Asian Americans. We are taught to um, you know, again, to kind of keep quiet, um, but also, you know, y- yeah, don't, don't, um, y- you know, don't ruffle the feathers. Um, I remember growing up, you know, I was always ashamed of my middle name cause it was my Chinese name. Um, and that was different or i was ashamed of the smell of my Chinese food from home, right. When I brought it into the lunchroom. Um, so there's a lot of shame, um, shame based culture. I think we are, but it's time for us to stop the cycle of shame and to be proud of who we are, share our culture and our heritage, wear the clothes um, that represent our culture and say the, the, the phrases, right? And teach them to, to our non-Asian neighbors. And then finally, T is um, take on leadership positions. If, we look at, if we're looking for systemic change, we need people of color at the seat of the table, up at the top. Uh, we need to start really, um, and this might not be for everyone. This might not be for everyone's calling, but if you have the opportunity to be able to be in a role where you're in the C-suite and you can make decisions that impact the organization, take that step. So that's kind of a, a, a model that we've um, kind of come up with with the clinician leader. It applies again to Asian-Americans as well as allies. If you're an ally, for example, you know, help, Help amplify the voice of, of your Asian American worker who's doing a good job and should be promoted, you know, um, help um you know draw out draw out their voice when we're too shy to to, to talk about it. And so um I, I, I know you mentioned um Todd about how you know being an ally. I think it's so important um that you know that you first of all have the um you know a- acknowledgement or or willingness, I should say, to you know, want to amplify voices of color. That's such a big step. And, you know, I, I will also say too, that, you know, being anti-racist doesn't mean that you need to hate your own culture and hate your own self. Right. Um, I'm married to a white man and we have had many conversations about, you know, where he struggles with, well, does that mean I need to hate my whiteness? And I say, no, I mean, your kids, we have four kids, they're half white and we need to embrace all parts of that. And we need to understand how to navigate as they grow up, how to, how to navigate that, that, that culture and those, the differences and, you know, and not to hate yourself. <laughs> um, and so on the other, on the flip side, it's, well, how yeah, how do we support each other? Um, and how do we respect each other? Because that's what we want to model for our kids growing up.
2: An element of celebration, the celebration of something that isn't you specifically but you're able to celebrate it in someone else and create a strength as a as a friend that you can bond with to learn a culture that to me is absolutely fascinating as well as extremely delicious from the purity of of the cuisines that you bring to the um to to millions and millions of Americans every year and 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 the deep culture and the deep respect there is so much respect even back to some of the americanized movies that probably don't pay enough um with the lack of the word i guess respect to the culture but there is such a reverence to the asian cultures and the way that they treated their their fathers and their mothers and their grandfathers and their grandmothers and the way that they like you know, like, just had a you know which we uh, there's a lot of cultures today in america that don't have that similar respect they you know s- were swearing at your mother or swearing you we know, have been un- unthought of and at least in my house that have been knocked down by my dad but but i i think of i think of that that we we push that under the rug or, or as you were saying bonnie you're shamed of that um that food or the way you dress or those phrases and that We have to almost go in the absolute opposite direction in our cultures to let the world know that America was that really first national melting pot of a multitude of cultures. That doesn't mean that that one disintegrated into the other. It meant that we fused them together to bring something of beauty of both sides, which in my opinion is our children um my my mixed children of four daughters is um an adoptive daughter uh, uh three of my own but from two different wives that is a completely mm-hmm. different culture and family and and I mean and our whole entire american population is that today and mm-hmm. so pharmacists have a very interesting number 1 number 2 impactful opportunity to deliver that respect just because that's your patient in front of you, but also Bonnie and Shin Yu holding their hand or looking in the the eye and letting them know that they're in a space of trust and of safety and and of understanding that if you have to communicate something else to me, other than just reviewing your medication review (laughs) And maybe de-prescribing because you're on 16 meds, and maybe you should only be on nine. But regardless, this is an opportunity to look at them and say, "Is there something going on? You know, did you want to tell me something? You want to talk to me about? Because you may be the only person that that yeah. patient or person is seeing that's looking yeah. at them. And they can, humans can tell that if you look them in the eye and you smile at them, we can pick up sincerity we know when we're being played or when we're being shluffed off or we're it's all in your attitude and that that's why medicine and healthcare providers when i think of our nurses and our pharmacists and our physicians half of medicine comes down to the way that we treat people just from our vibe that we're giving yep. off in that mm-hmm. sincerity
1: yep one of the best pieces of advice i got in pharmacy school was that they don't care what you know until they know that
3: you care.
2: That's true.
1: Right? This idea that, you know, I, I see you as a human being. I'm not trying to sell you a flu shot. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not, you're not a, you know, a business transaction, right? You you are a person and I'm here as a pharmacist to help you. So kind of laying the, the priority straight um, has been really crucial in my
3: kind of upbringing into my career. Yeah. And that's what we teach our, our students and that's what we model or for the next generation is that when we see patients, the first question is you don't delve into medications to say, how are you? Hey, I heard that you shared, um, you know, your mother passed away. How are you doing? Right, and instead sort of diving into the healthcare parts, diving into the human part of it first.
1: And New England Journal of Medicine um, has a great, um uh, publication. Uh, that it's called the Practical Guide for Combating a- Anti-Asian Sentiment. Um, a very. Um, they have a table there that has some great examples of how to, um, you know, uh, set the, the scene for you know Asians to feel comfortable in your clinics and your pharmacies when you're doing workups. You know, depending on kind of what work you do. Um, but, we, you know, we can certainly share that link um, so that, we could, you know, that resource can be shared to others as well.
2: I'm going to put that in the show notes because that's a absolute terrific reference. Um, practical guide to combat. What was it?
1: For combating Ooh. anti-Asian sentiment.
2: All right. <laughs> so I just found it. So I'm going to put this oh, link perfect. in our show notes. Um, make sure that you have access to this. If there are other links, um, Pharmacy Podcast Nation, listeners of the podcast right now that we don't have, I can update show notes. So if there are other references that you want to share, please reach out to us at uh, publisher at pharmacypodcast. podcast. Uh, that's publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. And we'll continue to update these uh, these show notes as well as get you um, other information as well as linking you. Um, with our with our guests today. And in, in really wrapping up, I want to make a statement to our listeners. The, the transforming a nation is dedicated to doing exactly that. And we can't do it by ourselves. It's, it's going to take the entire 311,000 pharmacists out there um, to, to together uh, really help to transform a nation and show our nation that through compassion and love and honesty and sincerity, we can literally transform a nation. And I honestly believe that I believe that we can see a difference between today's generation and next and being able to dispel and destroy and disintegrate uh, the ugliness and hatred that come from our fellow human beings in and in a mul- for a multitude of reasons. And, you know, it goes back to maybe not being happy with yourself and then you take it out on someone else um, in the way that you feel about yourself. But Rising up and taking a stand, and letting your family and your friends and your Facebook followers and your Twitter followers and your Instagram people that you will not stand for it and that you will stand for those that don't have someone um, that's on their team or they don't feel that it's on their team. That's why this platform's here. That's why we're doing this. And that's why I'm so proud of the both of you. For coming on this and sharing, because this isn't this isn't easy when you're being jettisoned out to the intersphere and the pos- podcast webs, um, you know, of thousands of listeners. Um, I know it's it's not easy to do, but I think it's necessary. And Bonnie and and Yu, like you both um, gave testimony. You said, "Hey, I could be doing something else right now. I could be diving into a patient case or or working on something." But you took the time this afternoon to do this uh, podcast with me. And that means a lot to me. And I thank you both.
4: Thank you for having us so much.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Todd. Again, thank you for being our allies and being an example of what an ally can do, which is using your platform to amplify voices of color. And that means so much to us. So thank you so much.
2: Podcast listeners, remember MUST, M-U-S-T. You are to model and to teach. You're to use your voice you're to stop the cycle of shame, and you're to take on a position of leadership. And I am so proud of the both of you, and I thank you so much. I thank you clinicians, I thank you pharmacists, I thank you community leaders out there that are taking a stand against um, hate, against Asian hate, and changing the narrative and educating our young uh, generations so that we don't have to have anything like this happen in, in our future and and transforming a nation i thank you so much for listening please pass this podcast on to someone else that you know and with that my heart goes out to you pharmacists you know i love you and if there's anything that we can do for you please reach out to publisher at pharmacy podcast and with that say goodbye